Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 8th, 2010, and my guest is Johanna Blakely, Deputy Director of the Norman Lear Center, a think tank at the University of Southern California. Johanna, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Now, you're a uh, student and expert on culture and fashion and a whole wide array of stuff. I found out about you because of a talk you did at TED.com, which we'll put a link up to uh, on the site for this podcast. And our goal today is to explore some of the issues you raised in there uh, on fashion and intellectual property, and we may get into some other issues as well. But let's start with fashion. Uh, Fashion is a fascinating world, especially to those of us on the outside. I'm really on the outside. Uh, Nobody's on the outside. Well, that's true. Well, my fashion's on the outside, and it doesn't doesn't make much of a statement about myself, I have to say. But every everything you wear makes a statement. I want to talk about that later. Uh, we we may the beauty of this show is that you can't see just how frumpy I am, uh, <laughs> but or dumpy. But let's start with a higher brow uh, topic, which is intellectual property in the fashion world. What is protected in the fashion world via the law and and legislation? What is not? Well, the main protection that fashion designers have is over their trademark, uh, their logo, their name. And so the source of the apparel design is protected, and that's why you hear a lot about these raids on pirates who have made fake copies of Louis Vuitton bags or whatever that they make available on Canal Street in New York or in uh, Santee Alley here in Los Angeles. So they have control of their name. And they have copyright protection for all of the two-dimensional designs that go into the creation of a garment. So if they create a textile design with a, you know, with a certain pattern on it, they, uh, they automatically qualify for copyright protection of that design. So silk screens that you see, two-dimensional designs that appear on T-shirts, they own that. But what they don't own are any of the three-dimensional designs that they end up creating. So all the stuff that you see prancing out on a runway at any of the various fashion weeks around the world are actually up for grabs. Anybody can copy absolutely any aspect of any of those designs and get into no trouble with the law, basically. So if I am, and of course those designs are not particularly utilitarian, which is a word that that comes up a lot in this in this industry because, uh, as you said in your talk, uh, utilitarian stuff tends not to be protected by by legal protection. So if yes, I, it, it, something has to be considered a work of art in order to qualify for copyright protection, and the courts decided long ago that they did not want any fashion designers owning such utilitarian designs as shirts, blouses, pants, cuffs, lapels, yeah. belts, whatever it may be. They didn't want somebody owning a monopoly. That's basically what a copyright gives you for a certain amount of time, a monopoly on a particular kind of design. But if I'm... Book, if I'm uh, say, at the runway in, in Milan, which I, I rarely am. Uh, if I'm at the runway uh, and I see a design that I like and I'm a, a, um, a medium to high-end retailer, versions of those non-utilitarian clothes get translated into garments that are worn by everyday people, Correct. Yes, and I think the, the distinction here is that the courts would say that any piece of fashion design, no matter how non-utilitarian it may seem, does not qualify for copyright protection. The only way it would qualify is if there was some detachable piece from that outfit, and uh, the example, uh, the rare example seems to be like a belt buckle, a sculptural item that you could remove from that utilitarian object and hang on the wall, right, and regard as a piece of art, that might qualify for copyright protection, but no other aspect of the wildest design that somebody might wear on a Milan runway is eligible. I'm just thinking now about how the industry works and it's uh, the dynamics of it. 
when there's a new look or a new color or a new style that becomes, quote, fashionable, whether it's um, – and I'm not talking here about the length of a skirt. I'm thinking more now of, say, a layered look or some kind of uh, hot new style. You know something about fashion. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm just pulling your leg. Uh, I'm really – tremendously knowledgeable but but i am fascinated by the how this cascades down the retail chain so you'll see a version of that at a high-end store but you'll also see a a version of it at possibly at at the gap or at target even so i'm curious what that dynamic is am i saying that correctly is it true that well, I, I would agree with everything you said except for the suggestion that it's entirely a, a top-down sort of business where things cascade from above and, and end up landing in the lowest-level retailers. It's a bit more complicated than that, and if you talk to any of the high-end designers, they always say they are very powerfully influenced by the stuff people are wearing on the street. They want to see how people are mixing and matching from their wardrobe, from their uh, uh, collection of the history of design. And then they're moved to act on that. They, they figure out what the zeitgeist is by looking at how consumers are actually wearing and putting together fashion. Then they create their next fashion um, show, their next collection. And what happens is that the ideas that really resonate with people, and by people I mean not only people in the industry, but also the consumers and the critics and the fans um, that blanket the world, those designs, those elements get picked up immediately and copied all throughout the fashion world at every level of retail. And now that we have these fast fashion giants, as we call them, stores like H&M and Topshop and even Forever 21, which which most people despise because they don't do anything creative in terms of their knockoffs, all of these businesses end up ricocheting off of these new ideas. And trends are set. People understand that pink is the new hot color, that hemlines have moved above the knee, that the layered look is the sexy thing right now. And people always thought that this must be some strange magical thing that happens but but the magic behind it the reason behind it is really that people are allowed to copy without talking to lawyers in order to get permission to copy those designs uh, i want to stick with this top down bottom up thing for a minute which uh, as listeners will know is of a long time interest of mine um in the devil wears prada which is i think maybe my only real fashion movie there is a scene where uh, meryl streep kind of lets the audience in on the secret that that a few people determine and steer what's the hot color this year, the hot style. And you're saying that's, one, that's not true in general. And two, that it comes from the creativity of a very large group of people, meaning mainly people I would suspect in large metropolitan areas that are relatively hip. Is that is that correct? And if that's so, do, do fashion people actually – spend their time walking the streets of Paris, New York, and, and Rome, and Milan, and Florence. Oh, to- absolutely, and they have their cool hunters out there trying to figure out what the next new hot thing is. And I think it's not only, there are lots of different types of fashion designers. I think there are those who we would consider more to have an artistic bent, where they, they come up with ideas that seem to emerge fully formed from their minds. We, we can't figure out where these bizarre ideas came from. People like Alexander McQueen, who, who just killed himself tragically, uh, was one of these designers. Then there's the designers like Tom Ford, who revolutionized Gucci, just dragged it up by its bootstraps and turned it into a global brand because he was really good at tapping into the markets and figuring out what people were really liking these days and what looked fresh and what looks new. So it's not by any means a monolithic uh, industry in terms of its creative cycles and its creative types. It's a bizarre interplay of many, many different forces. And because it has so much to do with people and who they are at a very sort of utilitarian street level, I think that's one reason that the street is over and over again mentioned as this very important aspect of the design process, even at the highest levels. Because we're not talking about a painting that just hangs in a museum, though of course there are fashion designs inside very important museums around the world, like the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
we're talking about stuff that really gets used. And so I think a lot of sociologists have looked at how it is that fashion uh, catches on, how it is that people articulate their identities through fashion, because this is this is really a global human movement. It's not just a, a reified art form. Uh, let's talk about the trend issue, <clears throat> which you uh, mentioned in your talk. But what fascinates me is uh, there is this tension between I want the newest thing, but I don't want to be out on a limb wearing something that looks goofy that isn't hip, right? So I want I there's this. At the same time, everybody wants the newest thing, but everyone, everybody wants to make sure they're wearing the right thing, right? Right, right. I think some sociologists call this flocking and differentiation. Yes. Right, that people want to demonstrate via their apparel that they understand what is in right now, what is acceptable to wear, and they also want to somehow articulate what's individual or unique about their own identity and their own taste their own aesthetic. And so most people, not all people, obviously, are trying to work that sort of uh, uh, that, that sort of gray area. And how does, um, how does that process actually work in, in the design world? There's a lot, there must be a lot of failure, right? There must be a lot of stuff that's rejected. Uh, in the in the there's there's inevitably some stuff that does come from the top that people just don't like. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's one reason that it remains such a refreshing and engaging sort of creative industry is that you cannot guarantee that even the most powerful players are going to be on top of the fashion heap for the next season. Even three months later, they could lose their footing, and somebody else, some other up and comer, can take their their spot. And so I think it, it definitely reveals that we don't have a strictly hierarchical industry here. We have one that falters and fumbles. But I think one reason that the entire industry remains financially uh, uh, stable, and, and it has been hurt in this financial crisis, just as every industry has been hurt, but they have remained uh, uh, flexible and supple, partly because they're able to latch onto trends. They can figure out quite fi- quite quickly, and especially now that we have these fast fa- fast fashion giants disseminating merchandise so quickly, they can tell which things are catching on, and so they can eliminate a lot of the designs that they believe uh, will be uh, uh, unsuccessful. Yeah, those fast fashion giants were preceded by some pretty fast fashion giants. I think in the in the eighties, especially when global production started to become more important, uh, the fashion industry, it seems to me, got very good at moving very quickly and con- saving on inventory costs, doing more just-in-time. Uh, and that has to have been a, a big factor in how the speed, how, how fast trends turn over, right? So I, yeah. I would assume that in the 50s and in the 20s, trends persisted for longer because it'd be very, very expensive to get on top of the next trend and be wrong. But now you can do it much more cheaply, and so a mistake must be less expensive. Yeah, I, I believe that's. I'm not an economist, but I believe that's, that's definitely the case. And a lot of it has to do with digital technology, the fact that we can yep. transmit this information about these new designs so quickly, and geography just doesn't become as much of a problem. Well, you tell a story in your talk about a Prada designer in a thrift shop uh, who finds a, a jacket that she's in love with that she's going to literally replicate. It's, an, it's a jacket that presumably isn't being manufactured anymore. It's in a – it's not a thrift shop. What's the right a word? A vintage shop. A vintage shop, which yeah. is a, a fancy way of saying a thrift shop. So mm. the replica – No, they're very different. Of course. The repli- right, one is cool and one is not. Uh, the, the replication of a design, I assume, is also easier because of digitization. Yes. Um, we're not exactly at the point where we have 3D printers where we can just right. generate, you know, even um, a mock-up of, a, of an original fashion design just uh, via a printer. That doesn't exist yet. But I have heard that they have some very sophisticated technology in China where someone can send a photo, um, and it's best that they can send uh, several photos of a garment from several different angles, 
and the pattern can be automatically generated by this software, and they can start manufacturing prototypes very, very quickly. Um, but this process is still very fuzzy, and from what I've heard, sometimes the computer churns out a design that is fundamentally different in one way or another from this photographed design, and they roll with it because this is a, you know, a variation on the trend, which is part of the flocking and differentiation process mm-hmm. uh, within the fashion world. So let's talk about the incentives. You know, a standard view would be if I think that my design is going to be copied and copied quickly, which is what has happened to some extent, the, the copying ability has gotten better and the speed of it's gotten faster, then you'd think that people would spend – would have less incentive – to create new and innovative designs. That does not seem to be the case in the fashion industry, and why isn't that? Well, I I think there are several reasons. One, from the very beginning, uh, copyright has sort of, has had, has both uh, given artists a certain kind of uh, advantage, and it's also taken something away from them. What copyright takes away from creators is access to other creative designs. And so uh, copyright holders may own what they have, but they cannot sample freely from what's around them. And this has become a huge problem in the film industry and in the music industry. The fashion industry, of course, doesn't suffer from this problem because every previous design that's ever been made is within a type of public domain. It is the raw material that they can sample from to make their new work. And having access to an incredibly rich, I mean, I can't even, I can't even describe how rich this archive really is. The history of fashion, everything that's ever been made, every, every, uh, hem length, every, uh, uh, curved seam, every style is available for people to sample from. And in doing so, they, they not, it's not that they're just stealing, it's, it's sort of a curatorial responsibility that they have. They're curating different, uh, gestures, different uh, design elements from the past, and they are inevitably creating something that's new. Uh, from Yucha Prada, who is actually making an exact copy of a previous design, she's not making a new design, but what she's doing is she's, she's integrating it into a historical moment where it didn't exist before. Suddenly, it's in dialogue with the rest of her collection. It becomes something that speaks to all of the other designs that are coming out at the moment, and it becomes this new thing. And so this is one of the huge advantages of not being restricted by uh, copyright protection. I think one of the challenges that economists and and lawyers and everyday people, normal human beings, uh, have when they think about these issues is there's a morality issue that weighs very heavily on us, and then there's the practical issue. So let me try to set up that. Uh, that distinction and let you apply it to to fashion. So, as you said, there's a lot of fights going on right now about music and, and film. I think there's an aspect of copying that's that's been going on in music, film, and in the written word forever, which is uh, imitation, we would call it. So, a creative musician creates um, a new style of music, and it's imitated by Every young player, some trying to do it better, some trying to do it faster, some trying to do it uh, cleverer, some trying to do it in a more moving way, uh, some using a different kind of lyric. And as you say, when you go back into the past and you quote a style of music, uh, it has a resonance that un- can't be really described by – it's part of the human experience, right? That, uh, it's a mix of nostalgia and and interaction with the with the present that's just a spectacularly beautiful thing about about human creativity. So we might make a distinction between that and replication, right? So replication in the music world, if you take a song that someone else has written, you can't copyright the scale, you can't copyright the notes, you can't copyright the combination of notes, and then the courts are going to decide whether um, uh, George Harrison's uh, My Sweet Lord is really the same song as um, he's so fine. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, he's so fine. Yeah. Right, and they sound off a lot alike. They're kind of different, and that's a gray area. But at one extreme, we understand that that rock music can't be copyrighted, and at the other extreme, we understand that you can't take my words 
and my tune and just record it yourself uh, under current law. In the fashion world, it sounds like you can do both. You can imitate, so you can have a puffy sleeve or a set of pleats or a, a wide lapel, and you can even make the exact same width of lapel and material, et cetera. And what's interesting, I think the reason I was so attracted to your observations on this is that in the fashion world, even though both replication and imitation are allowed, it seems to work out pretty well. But people are pretty creeped out at least some people, that that might be possible in other worlds. And that could be because they're not used to it, or it could be because it's not the same. So talk about how it works in fashion. Why is it that when I generate a new design, that it can be literally copied, and I'm still going to be, I'm still going to make money? Well, one, uh, because of trends, right? Because so many people want to be able to flock toward a certain kind of design, to demonstrate that they are literate and aware of, of what's in right now. That means that if you are making a design and you are a fairly high-level designer, let's say, and nobody is knocking it off, then it probably means it's not going to be trending. Mm-hmm. And it means that you're probably not going to have as high sales on that item as you could have if people had chosen to knock it off. So that's one reason. The other aspect of this that is unique to the fashion industry, some would say, but I'd say it's certainly something that applies to other creative industries, is that there's a very fast cycle of innovation and turnover, um, what some people have described as an induced obsolescence cycle within the fashion industry, because once the people who believe themselves to be at the avant-garde of fashion, the people who have discovered the new design trend and participated in popularizing it, they have to get off of that trend and onto the next one if they want to remain at the avant-garde. Right. So because fashion is something that, um, for most of us, is, a, is an affordable luxury, we can buy new shirts and new pants and new dresses each season to supplement a core wardrobe that, that we love and that we care about and, and that will last us through many years of our lives. Because we have this discretionary income to participate in these trends, we can keep buying and we can keep changing our minds. We can evolve our look. And this is a fabulous thing for the bottom line in an industry that needs to move product. I want to ask you about two things about that. First, I want to ask about a longevity at the top. So if I asked you for the list of who you think are the top five to ten designers right now, how different would that list be from a list you might have made five years ago or ten years ago? Very different. There might be just a, a couple holdovers. Although the, I assume that the ones who dropped out, can, many of them are still making a living. They're just oh, not of course, and, and so much of it is just a matter of taste. When we put together, of course, uh, when we put together a, a very large conference about this topic, um, I think it's been five years ago now, in 2005, I went out to try to make sure that I wasn't just imposing my own aesthetic uh, sensibility on this conference and tried to do a lot of research in order to figure out, you know, who are the top designers? Who are the ones who have been most influential throughout the history of design? For every single critic, for every single book, for every single expert in this field, you've got a completely different list. And that's one of the beauties of this industry. There is no agreement that there are three people who have had more impact than anyone else on this industry. In that respect, it, it has a certain uh, democratizing feeling to it. There's a certain egalitarian spirit to fashion in that people ultimately believe that taste is a key sort of factor in figuring out quality. Yeah, it's a dynamism, really. Yeah. So, so if you're a talented, again, let's think about the music, fashion, uh, parallel or non-parallel. If you're a, um, an aspiring designer today, uh, is it a better time to be alive, or would you have been better off uh, living in the 1970s? Oh, it depends on the kinds of uh, clothing and the kinds of designs that you're trying to create, I think. What's, um, what's, the be- what's good now? Well, I think now you have to be somebody who's willing to shock people 
And I think those are the people who will more easily sort of climb to the top of the trade. You have to be somebody who's interesting, interested in embracing new technologies, not just in the creation of your fabrics and the creation of your textile designs and, and the manufacturing of these things. I think you also have to be somebody who's willing to play within the new sort of economy of fashion, which includes these these um, uh, fast fashion giants, several of the most distinctive and important um, haute couture designers have actually done lines for, uh, for uh, stores like H&M. They have successfully copied themselves right at a much lower price point. And I think there are some designers who will absolutely never do that. They cannot imagine besmirching yeah. their aesthetic by dragging it down to the lowest common denominator. And those people are going to have a harder time becoming global uh, movers and shakers in this current economy. In the 70s, they, they could have that sort of uh, persona. Uh, they didn't have to create bridge lines necessarily for department stores in order to really make money. Why do you th- what has changed? Well, the technology has changed, and I think that has really driven so much of the changes in this industry and in every other one that you can imagine. And, and it's going to become uh, the issues about around creativity and intellectual property law are going to become even more profound when digital technology can be used to replicate complex three-dimensional physical objects. Right now, digital technology in the hands of just about any child you see on the street can be used to replicate and disseminate an MP3 file, for instance, yep. or a video file. And that has introduced uh, a, a kind of chaos into those industries that is, is really hard to fathom. What's going to happen when you have that sort of technology at your hands to replicate these complicated three-dimensional objects? That That is coming down the pike. And I think now is a really good time for us to better hash out and figure out what sorts of property rights really make sense for creative people within a digital age. It's a tough question to answer. Is Um, it ever? You mentioned in your talk that uh, it's too important to leave it to the lawyers. I guess part of – I'd I'd even go farther. I'd say – further. I'd say it's too important to leave to experts, but I'm not sure what the alternative is except to let – Customs and norms emerge about what's appropriate and not. I don't know if that'll work any better, but well, I think one part of a research project that I'm I'm pitching and trying to put together post TED dot com is um, a survey of artists to find out from them in what way the intellectual property structures that they depend upon help them and hurt them. To That's what a degree good does it serve their creative process, and to what degree does it not? It'll be a snapshot in time, but these are the people that we're depending on. For the beautiful and fabulous things of the future, if we're talking about fashion, they're also the people we're depending upon for the beautiful and fabulous software solutions we see in the future. And medicines and Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I agree that we don't just want academic experts who know something about sociological models and economic models and, and obviously legal code. We really do need to tap into the people who are trying to make things within this digital environment where our intellectual property laws do not jibe with the technology that's available to us now. Well, of course, the challenge of that is we know that existing players often want the status quo. They want to make it harder for people to compete, so their incentive to talk about what motivates them may be distorted. The real challenge is trying to figure out what would motivate the next generation of creative people and what legal environment would provide the correct incentives for them or the best incentives. No such thing really is correct, but... But well, I think the artists are easier to talk to about this and more willing to suggest that the status quo isn't working for them than the people who actually own the music labels, the people who own the production facilities and the marketing units, for instance, in the television or film industry. The creatives, I think, have been frustrated for a while. And they've been frustrated by how they've been locked out of, uh, of some of the um, uh, uh, financial opportunities that you would find in copyright law. A lot of these p- people are work for hire, and they work for major corporations who end up owning that copyright even longer than an individual artist ever could. You know, in 1998, these rules were revised so that, what was it? It was extended to an extra 20 years. Yeah, a long time. So um, it's life of the author plus 70 years, and for works of corporate authorship, it's 120 years after creation. Seems like more than enough. 
on the corporate uh, yeah. side. <laughs> Although, you know, it's interesting. I, one of the things that, that your observations make me think about is um, a lot of times people talk about product differentiation as if it is a um, empty frill. But, for example, in your um, in your talk, you mentioned that tattoo artists generally don't want copyright protection. So if you come up with a really cool tattoo design, anybody can copy it. Now, it, they might feel differently if you could literally just snap your fingers and have the tattoo. Presumably, some of the advantage that a great designer has is the ability to tattoo well. Or in the case of the fashion world, the distinctiveness, that it, the small details that sometimes distinguish a great design from a, just an okay design, or the raw materials that are used are going to be at a higher end for the original design. Um, we, had, we had Steve Mayer on here talking about the current chaos in the digital music world and you know, how he sees it as a plus, even though it's hurt a lot of music labels, uh, it's should be encouraging and is encouraging people to provide something extra rather than just the MP3 file, whatever that might be. And I think that's a whole area of creativity that some people would see it as wasteful, but it may be the cheapest way actually to avoid the legal t entanglements that that the that the legislative solution is going to inevitably have. Yeah, I, I think I talked about a few aspects of this in, in the TED.com talk. Uh, for instance, in, in industries that have low intellectual property protection, for instance, the fashion industry not having any copyright protection, you almost inevitably develop a, a reputational system that becomes very powerful. And the fact that these fashion designers own their name, they own their trademark, and nobody can knock that off, means that that needs to be a signifier that actually indicates something. Does it indicate a certain kind of a style and look? Usually, yes. They try to come up with a signature look, um, a set of designs that somehow coherently fit together. And when other people knock them off without attribution, people in the know know that these people have been knocked off because they recognize the, the turn of phrase, the, the look of that designer's work. And they also use materials that are very difficult to copy. They sew things in ways that are, are, are so careful, so innovative, that other people can't quite figure out how to do that. So a lot of people raved about uh, Coco Chanel because of the fit of her outfits. And she didn't mind that people knocked her off all the time because she was absolutely positive that nobody could make their knockoff jackets fit as well as hers did. I forgot. A lot of people would say that about musicians as well. There are certain musicians who just have a certain timbre of voice, a certain kind of delivery of a song that nobody can really copy. Everybody can tell that that's, that's the special recording. Yeah. I forgot I did see that, that Coco Chanel movie, so that's two fashion movies for me. Ah, you're more that? fashionable what? than you've been letting on. Was it called, what was it, Coco? What was it called? Well, there were two. Um, there was a Coco before Chanel, uh -huh. and uh, there was this Coco. Yeah, I think I saw Coco. Yeah, it was, both it was pretty good. the last year. It was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, or maybe I saw it before Chanel. I can't remember. Um, you know, I, yeah, you mentioned, uh, I thought it was a great observation that, that you can't copyright a joke. Um, and I think it's easy to forget the benefits of copying. Again, I think we have a, a strong morality against it, which is probably a good thing in general uh, about theft. But copying is of intellectual property is, is grayer and we're – our whole cultural feeling about it is, is changing. I think if you're under 25 or under 20, you feel very differently than if you're over 50, um, as I am. But when you talked about jokes, I, I will never forget I heard um, there's a comedian musician named Pete Barbuti. He was on Johnny Carson. This is, must have been in the 70s or 80s. And he told an incredibly funny joke. And I, he may have made it up or he may have stolen it. I don't know. As you pointed out in your talk, you can't copyright a joke. Of course, how you tell a joke is unique, and each person tells a joke differently. So Pete Barbuti told this this unbelievably funny joke, which is about the pig with the wooden leg. I'm not going to tell the joke, but maybe I could find an online version of it. Uh, it's a little bit of a shaggy pig uh, joke. It goes for a while, but it's got a great punchline, and it's a very offbeat joke. So Pete Barbuti tells this joke on Johnny Carson. Everyone's roaring when it's done. And the next night, Carson had a comedian on who's sitting on the couch, and he tries to tell the same joke 
<laughs> and it was fascinating to me because, one, the joke was so funny and so clever and so different, it had rippled through the country so that an enormous number of people had heard it. And this comedian had heard it and thought, wow, this is great. I'm going on Carson. I'm going to be able to tell this joke. He got about two sentences into it, and Johnny Carson cut him off. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't intellectual property. Carson didn't want his show to, to be copying itself from the night before. He was kind of maybe protecting Pete Beauty's intellectual property or whosoever it was that had written it originally. Uh, but what was fascinating to me is how many people got to enjoy that joke in that one day that it had gotten so far along that a guy heard it through N connections of people that he thought he could tell it and maybe no one would have heard it. When in fact, I think everyone in the country had stayed up at night had heard it, told you know 10 friends who told 10 other friends. Right. In that day and age, it was more likely that you could get away with that. Correct. Right. And it's now much that we have YouTube, now. man, it is much harder. And I think a lot of people would argue, and I think I'd be among them, saying that, we don't, we aren't necessarily going down a road where everybody's going to copy one another because they can. Yes, we're going to sample from this magnificent treasure trove of recorded humanity that we have online. Of course we are. Uh, we're going to become addicted to it. Um, but we are going to also feel the pressure to innovate and find the new thing, the new novel thing. That's what Johnny Carson needed to do in order to make sure that his show wasn't be going to be uh, boring and hackneyed. And it's the same thing that every fashion designer needs to do with every single collection. Every season, they cannot guarantee that they're going to stay on top of the heap. In fact, it's almost guaranteed that they won't stay on top of the heap. Yeah, what I find so remarkable is uh, how much delight there is in the world at so little cost for today's uh, for our, for humankind, it's uh, you know we think about how much cool fashion there is if that's what you're into, or how many cool viral videos there are, or how many funny jokes, or how many great clips of uh, Rajon Rondo's incredible block of of Derek Fisher's shot was. It's it's all out there. You don't have to. It's it's the accessibility of it, and, and the as you say, the democ- democratization of it, democratization of it is so intense. Partly because it's cheap, which is a huge part of it. And so, as you say, I think people have to come up or the world will create uh, the rules that will allow this to keep going because it's it's a glorious time to be alive. I think so. And I was just listening to your um, podcast, I don't know how recent it was, with Tyler Cowen. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about taste streams. Yep which is something that I'm very interested in here at the Norman Lear Center. I think it's, there's something incredibly inspiring about the fact that we can pursue our love. You know, we can pursue our amateur interests so easily now. I grew up in a time when you couldn't do that, and I was in a very small town and very disconnected from the rest of the world and miserable about it. Uh, my library just wasn't good enough to... to get me up to speed on the things that I was really passionate about. The four channels that I had access to yeah. on television didn't have all the stuff that I wanted to know about the world. And the first time I ended up surfing the web in probably 1994, 1995, I wept. I was so excited that I could finally visit the Louvre yeah, online. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's an, I always like it when people, um, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite movies but it roman- it romanticizes small town America uh, in a way that's not realistic because most people who grew up in those small towns of Bailey Falls uh, they wanted to go to Potterville they wanted to go where the lights were bright uh, the 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 whiskey was flowing and uh, people wanted to dance and they weren't just doing the jitterbug over the gymnasium floor so uh, I think it is um, I'm glad to get out good for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you some personal questions, Shahana, um, and you can decide whether to, to answer these or not. Uh, I didn't warn you about this, but it's yeah. What's this so, about? Sorry, you can you can duck them. What am I wearing? No, I'm not going to ask. Well, close, uh, but but I'm going to ask you uh, what I didn't tell you before. This is I do I will edit this if this is like horrifyingly embarrassing to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, we we can cut this out if we have to. So here's the first question, which is. How many hours a week do you spend shopping? Uh, I'm sure it's all research, but how much do you spend shopping? I go in spurts um, because I mostly shop when I travel. Mm-hmm. 
And the uh, the only shopping that I do here in Los Angeles tends to be thrift store shopping. And how many pairs of shoes do you have? I'd say I probably have about 40 pairs. That's not very many. Oh, my God, it's a lot. I'm no. embarrassed. No, because I, I do a survey of my students, and I've taught at lots of different places, and I often ask them how many uh, pairs of shoes they have. And 40 is not close to the upper end of, of today's uh, 18 to 22 year old. Um, well, they just—I uh, must say it's partly climate. I live in Los Angeles, and they just won't wear out. Yeah, that could be part of the problem. Yeah, but 40s is not a small. I didn't mean to suggest it's uh, that that it's some sort of Spartan existence. It is thoroughly decadent. 40 is a bit is a bit decadent. I I always do the survey because uh, I'm interested in in one, two things. One of which I'm going to ask you about. One of the things I'm interested in is how wealthy we are. Um, it's an extraordinary example of both our wealth and the low price of typically imported shoes that we can afford so many. Uh, and you know, right now I'm teaching at George Mason, which is a state school. The average student who comes here does not come from a wealthy background. It's not an expensive, high-end private school with high tuition. And yet my, my students have, have lots of shoes. Uh, I also use it to make the observation that People think that uh, – I think they get confused about demand curves. When you ask people if price goes down, how much would you buy? We'd say, well, I already – you can only wear one pair of shoes at a time. <laughs> so, but you can, you can mix and match with lots of different ones, and people like to have a choice. And So that's one reason I ask. The second reason I ask is there's a gender difference, a uh, sex difference. Men – there are men with lots of shoes. But on average, women have more pairs of shoes, in my experience, than men do. And in some of your examples we're talking about, we're, we often are talking about women's clothing. Um, why do you think that is? It's an it's a, it's a age-old question. Oh, yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of reasons, I believe. And um, first, I think that women have, uh, especially in, in our society and, and generally within the Western world, I'd say there is more of a value on looking good among women than there is among men. And if men are concerned with looking good and demonstrating a certain fluency with design and style, people may mistake them for being homosexual. So there's a feminizing aspect to an interest in fashion, a demonstrated interest in fashion. And I'm always curious to meet those guys who seem to really get it. They understand exactly what's in. They understand what works for them. And they still send off this very confident sort of masculine vibe. So and sometimes these men are, are, are straight and sometimes they're gay. But there is a real anxiety within our culture for most straight men to demonstrate that they really understand what's in style. Okay, so help, help me out. Uh, give me some fashion advice as uh, – I, I should say this uh, before we go on. Uh, I have maybe 10 pairs of shoes, I'm thinking, you know, across sandals, sports shoes, dress shoes, casual shoes, right? Maybe, maybe I got 12 pair, and I, try, I probably wear two or three of them 99% of the time. Um, I've got maybe three suits. Uh, two of them I wear. One of them I probably don't wear anymore. Uh, the two suits I wear are charcoal gray and and navy blue. They're Brooks Brothers. Oh, um, oh dear. Yeah, and I've got <laughs> I've got oh. maybe five sport coats. I got a navy blue that I wear way too often because it's safe. And by the way, that's the Economist uniform. Is the is the blue blazer? Oh, um, I've got a little bit of variety. I have a um, what's the Armani knockoff? Uh, not knockoff brand, but the 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 Mani. I have a Mani sport coat that I picked up at some uh, semi hip place in New York City twenty fifteen years ago. That's still kind of holding on. Well, what what worries me is the semi hip. Yeah. Well, what, what can I do? You know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a, I'm lost in the sea of fashion, and so I go with reliable. In fact, my wife was telling me the other day that, in general, hemlines come down in tough economic times. I think that's probably true, and I assume that's true because longer skirts are more likely to stay in fashion. And I and it's the same with a Brooks Brothers suit. You you, you never look like a fool in a Brooks Brothers suit or in a traditional suit. You might look um, 
dull, right? Yeah. But you you don't look like a fool. And in, for most men, so I'm putting myself in this group, not looking like a fool is one of my main goals in, in how I dress. So I'd you want, say that's the case for, for most professional men. Yeah, we want to play it safe. So if you, any advice for us? Oh, it's or, or better. You know, it, there's no blanket advice. That's, yeah. that's one of the more interesting things about this whole realm of, of human life, you know, calculating and curating your... your uh, I want the optimal appearance. wardrobe. There's no such thing, is there? There's no such thing as what? <laughs> An optimal wardrobe. Oh, there is, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. what is it? Absolutely, it does exist out there. You know, you just need help. <laughs> you need somebody who's knowledgeable, who understands your price point. That's a key part of it. How extensive you want to look, um, how hip you want to look, um, how uh, uh, conservative versus liberal you may want to look. I mean, there's a million different kinds of uh, sub-factors that are calculated into what is the right kind of stuff for you. Okay. And I must say... You don't just come up with one equation. You have to come up with a different equation for every single event I that know, you go to. I know. There's I, a different audience there. You're a performer, and yeah. you have to put on your costume for a performance. And sometimes you'll be more concerned about being comfortable. Other times you'll be more concerned about being impressive. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of really uh, subtle calculations going on there. So I think you need a personal shopper. Well, I was going to ask you, do you, when you go shopping... In my experience, a lot of women have a friend who they trust who will either, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. Could be a sister. Um, do you shop with friends or do you just rely on your own? I, I generally fly solo because I usually do my shopping when I'm traveling because I like to get things in places that I want to remember. Oh, that's and cool. usually I can get more unique things yeah. from local designers when, when I go to Brussels or to Amsterdam or Paris. or I just came back from those three places. It's fabulous. And I bought clothes every place. So I'm usually alone. I assume you check, by the way, when you travel. I check? Your baggage. Oh, I usually don't. If I travel during the summer, I'm pretty small, and so I can, I can cram a lot into okay. a small bag. But during the winter, I, I have to check my bag, yeah. Okay, because if you're bringing back all this stuff, you got to... It's small, you know. It's clothes. I, I don't buy shoes generally. That's just too big and too heavy, and often too expensive abroad. It is. A, you know, I'm joking about this, but it, it's a very serious issue in, in my life. I've pro- besides my wife, who I trust, right? But I don't really want to go shopping with my wife, and I don't really like shopping. So that's, you know, that's who I am. Uh, but when I need an outfit, when I really want an outfit for for say the, one of the suits wears out. Uh, Having a salesperson who you trust, whether it's a personal shopper or a person at a store, is an unbelievably comforting thing for a man like myself who's a little bit uneasy with his fashion choices. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you're lucky if you have the chance to develop that relationship with somebody because these days people just move so quickly. There's just no job security within the retail sectors. And so the people you end up loving, they're just not there the next year. Yeah, that's true. It's a that's tough. A it's a tough. But world. I, I must tell you, when my uh, my longtime boyfriend, uh, he is not allowed to buy any clothing really without me being present. And is that his choice or yours? Both. He uh-huh. realizes that it, it's it's painful for him to uh, to make one an incorrect decision and two uh, to get something that I just don't like. Have you upgraded his wardrobe? Since oh, you've... are you kidding? <laughs> Oh, my God. He went from Wilson tennis shoes and Gerbo shorts and Ralph Lauren polo tops untucked to a very hip, very nice profile, I'd say, right now. Looking good. Yeah. Well, you know, some people can pull that off, and they can go from a world of ignorance to a world of of wisdom. But for other people, their body type, age, whatever it is, they'll never – yeah, it's better just to stick with the old reliable, I think, for me. I don't know. I mean, body type really is a challenge. It, it's much easier if you're a slender guy. It's much easier if you're a taller guy. But there are options out there, and you can optimize. Don't you ever watch the Tim Gunn shows? No. <laughs> and Queer Eye for the Straight Guy? No. I don't watch much <laughs> TV, John. It's, uh, it's one, of my, one of my many handicaps in life. Oh. Well, let's move away from fashion. We've got a little bit of time left. I want to ask you about a totally different project, although it has some obvious uh, similarities to what we're talking about, which is the, it's, I think it's called the Grand Intervention. Is that correct? Yeah. So tell us about what that, what that is and what you're doing with it. 
Um, well, uh, it's one of the more unique uh, projects I've ever worked on here at the Norman Lear Center, and that is saying something. I've been here for 10 years, and we tend to do some very interesting and innovative stuff. What happened is that we had heard that there was going to be a 16-acre park designed basically from scratch for downtown Los Angeles. It was supposed to be the Champs-Élysées of Los Angeles, and so we were really excited. We had seen what had happened with Millennium Park in Chicago, where they hired some very serious and interesting designers to do something really innovative and to create a fabulous public space. We're very interested in public spaces at the Norman Lear Center, any leisure space, uh, places where people have a chance to do any sort of uh, collective citizenship action. So we started following the developments for this park in downtown Los Angeles, and we were very disappointed when we found out that the city and the county who owns the land had given the design of the park over to a, a company that had um, that had been given a deal on some very big parcels of land in the adjacent area. So there was going to be no design contest, and there really wasn't going to be a robust public debate about what that park ought to do and how it ought to be designed. So we went to our friends at the Los Angeles Times and said, you know, you really should hold some sort of park design contest to really solicit responses from the public, find out what they want this thing to do. Should it be for protests? Should it be for farmers markets? Should it be community gardens? How can it be mobilized to bring together this really crazy patchwork uh, city? And for people who have never been to L.A., L.A., you know, the joke is there's no downtown. There, there is a, set, a part of Los Angeles where the buildings are a little taller than average. Oh, but, yeah. but it's got a problem in that it doesn't have a central feel or an advantage, whatever it is. It doesn't feel like most yeah. American cities. Yeah, and uh, this is a part of downtown where we have a brand-new Catholic church, and we have several um, very serious uh, arch- new architectural buildings, including the Walt Disney Hall made by Frank Gehry, and then we have MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Artists, right bordering along this park, and a, a gorgeous city hall that had just been refurbished, um, an Art Deco city hall right at the end of the park. And so um, it seemed like a great opportunity. The L.A. Times agreed with us, but we were shocked when they said, oh, why don't you guys run that design contest, and we can provide the bully pulpit for you. You can publish your op-eds in here. We'll, we'll support the process and we'll disseminate the results. And so we ended up holding this very grassroots design contest for a park where we couldn't promise anyone that any of their ideas would, would be implemented. We didn't have a contract with the city, but we immediately got the attention of the city and the county and of the developers who were in charge of designing that park, and they realized they really needed to listen to what the public was saying about that space. And I believe we received 300 park designs, um, a lot of uh, graduate-level courses all around the Los Angeles and Southern California area contributed some amazing designs, and we got some international responses. Uh, we got some stuff from crazy people. We also got some wonderful designs from homeless kids who live downtown. Um, interestingly enough, they put a lot of uh, apartment buildings in the park because yeah. that's what they most yeah. need and want, sure. along with a sizzler. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, of course. And a big hot tub. Mm-hmm. Really yeah. big. Yeah. So go ahead. So so what state? So you got a bunch of designs, and where are you at now? We got a bunch of designs. We brought together a really fabulous uh, board of advisors. We needed help understanding this whole project, and they were fabulous. And one member of our board of advisors um, was actually selected as the head park designer for the park. And he spent a lot of time combing through all of the recommendations that were made by the citizens. We published a special section in the Los Angeles Times on Christmas Day showcasing um, a lot of the designs, some of the more interesting uh, designs that came through this design contest. We also held some uh, workshops where we invited the public to participate uh, via webcast if they couldn't quite make it downtown to the charrette. We held three of those. What is, what is a charrette? A charrette is it's usually used in the field of architecture where you bring together a group of people with uh, various skill sets to solve a design problem. Sometimes it'll last one day, sometimes it'll last three days, sometimes it'll last a month. And at the end, they need to have something that they offer, a model or a design for the future. Okay. 
So uh, we did three of those. And right now, um, we're just waiting for ground to be broken. And because the, um, because the budget for the park was so minimal, really what they're doing in the first stage is just creating a sort of platform for uh, more ingenious and interesting installations in the future. So uh, that's all really that they could afford to do is sort of bring this park together, turn it into a space, which it really isn't right now, and a kind of tabula rasa so that we can implement some of the great ideas that people suggested through the contest. So we don't know yet what's going to actually happen there. No. I mean, we have a basic sense of how these 16 acres are going to be pulled together and some of the fixtures that are going to remain there. There's a massive fountain inside this civic space right now that most people had never, they couldn't see it from any of the streets. It was completely hidden. And once it was discovered to be there, people became very angry about it being torn down. So it's actually going to be enhanced Hmm. and kept, and it's going to be made much more visible. Um, And that's an expensive process, of course, all the bulldozers and everything to change the elevations of the park. Have you ever been to Epcot Center? You know, I haven't. There's a fountain there that plays. It's the weirdest, coolest thing. It's a fountain that responds to music. I'm sure it's not the only one in the world. Oh, yeah, the Bellagio in Las Vegas, let me tell you. Yeah, it's probably yeah. better, but it's... Uh, and there's one here in the Grove, the the main hip shopping mall here in Los Angeles. One at Epcot. Epcot dead. Okay. Uh, we won't tell you anyone you've been there, uh, but you've heard <laughs> of it. Um the one at Epcot, you know, it changes color, it changes, it's, yes. it, it's basically conducted by the music. It's a very cool thing. Um, I was going to ask you... Yeah, we had some interesting proposals for interactive fountain design uh-huh. for the park downtown, too. I mean, it's an interesting challenge. We don't... One of the great virtues of private property is that if you use it well, you get the benefits, and if you use it poorly, you usually bear the loss. Uh, public space, the people who, quote, own it, better way to say it, the people who have decision-making control over it often don't capture the benefits and costs, so their incentives to use it wisely doesn't always happen. And, of course, sometimes they mean well, they just don't pull it off. Um, I think the interesting question in a situation like this, when you sort of get control of it, is you know, everybody wants something different. Like you say, you've got some people who want farmer's market, some people want a dog run, some people want a, a giant ultimate frisbee stadium um and it's a limited amount of space should there be a referendum should there be right how do you make those decisions it's tough There's oh it no- is tough and it it we we really as we were doing research and and talking with um with our board of advisors and reaching out we we realized that there's quite the trend actually in urban park development to make these spaces incredibly flexible with a sort of uh, understanding that people will have different needs and they'll want this public space to be mobilized in different ways as the decades roll on. And so we got a lot of really interesting proposals that suggested ways in which you could reconfigure the park space very easily and very quickly. So if you have a protest coming up, you know, you roll out this sort of uh, strange semi-concrete, rollable semi-concrete stuff that protects the grass underneath so that people can stomp and and cheer and, and have a massive protest without ripping up the gardens. It's like the basketball court over the, the hockey rink. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so I think a lot of designers are very aware that, that we want that kind of flexibility. And one um, success story in urban park design is Bryant Park, which is where actually the big New York fashion shows take place. It's funny It's funny you mention that. I was just there about a week ago, and I was just marveling at what a glorious space it is. It used to be, you know, crappy. It used to be a really scary place uh, not that long ago. And now it's turned into an incredibly vibrant urban park. And some people were angry about the way the park was being set up and programmed. One of the priorities of the city was that they were going to make the space available for events, like the, the fashion shows, which are not open to the public, right? Those are events that are invitation only. I'd kill to get in there, but I probably couldn't even, even now. Um, but, something to uh, hope for. I know, it's something to hope for. <laughs> so people were frustrated that the city had decided to use this public space um, to monetize it, basically. So they have farmer's markets there. They have different kinds of uh, retail opportunities that pop up every now and then. And though there is uh, some resistance, certainly, from citizens who think that that really shouldn't happen in public spaces, 
I think the more pragmatic people have decided that, well, you know, this is one way to activate the space, make sure that people go there, and um, and it's a way for the city to make money to support public programming. Yeah, the problem is you never – the incentives, again, are not always – well, they're never correct, so you have to worry about – People rewarding their friends, giving them access to that space. So it's it's a challenge. I guess if you lean on it hard enough, you maybe can keep it in line. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, some of the people who the the superintendents who are really um, at at the uh, you know overseeing this Grand Avenue Park project, they decided to really adopt the Bryant Park model. So we expect there to be a lot of programming, a lot of event driven stuff happening in that park, and it's probably a good idea because the space is just. It hasn't been activated. The public doesn't yeah. really know it's there. I guess one way to keep that working well is to have some checks and balances on the people who are making the decisions, right? Uh, as opposed to make, having them be political appointees. Um, you know, maybe it's a rotating board. Maybe they're elected. Maybe I don't know. Um, is you know, Bryant Park for those of you who haven't been there, it's 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 about two thirds of a New York block, and. It's a large lawn that is ringed by tables and chairs mostly, and it, the area that's ringed with the tables and chairs, it's beautifully landscaped. The trees are gorgeous, um, and there's different areas. There's a chess area, and there's a ping-pong area, which is pretty uh, bizarre for an outdoor place. There's a reading area with some books on display outside. There's a cafe. Did they use the lawn because people weren't on the lawn when I was there. I haven't been there in a while, other than this last time. Do you know? Oh, I believe you can use the lawn. Because that would make sense. But yeah, it's beautiful to see Paris, it. actually, you're not allowed to use the lawn most times, which is quite depressing. Well, there's something beautiful about grass that's just nicely cut. It's fun yeah. to look at. It's more fun to lay on it and listen to music, though. So I don't. Sure. And it's more sustainable in New York than it is here in L.A. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> or it, so, actually, it actually rains there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we're almost out of time. Um, I, I wanted to ask you quickly, if you could, about Second Life. What are you doing with Second Life? Uh, we've been really interested in Second Life uh, for several years now. Um, I'm I'm a science fiction hound, and so I was very excited to see somebody really uh, uh, achieve some traction with, with a, a metaverse, basically, a, a world that is a virtual parallel of our own. And one thing I find fascinating about Second Life is just about any sort of thing that you could point to in the real world has its bizarre analog in Second Life. So there's property taxes, there's voting, there's political campaigns, there's mafia, there's criminals, there's murder, there's drug dealing, there's, uh, you know, all the aspects of sort of violent crime are there. And you also have all of these incredibly socially productive things. There are 700 educational institutions that have a permanent presence in Second Life teaching courses. And uh, you have several embassies from around the world who are, you know, setting up virtual embassies within Second Life in order to carry out um, their intercultural work. So we've been very interested in lots of aspects of Second Life, and we built an island in Second Life called the Center of Attention, where we decided that we would have a sort of laboratory workspace to, to think about, talk about, write about, and prototype uh, different kinds of tools to measure the attention economy in a virtual world. Hmm. And is that up and running? It is, but it's not open to the public right now. Uh, we did open it to the public for a little while, and people started doing drag racing on our island. Unexpected. <laughs> That's the beauty of Second Life. Suddenly there were like three new houses on the island, and all this drag racing was going on. It was very <laughs> wild. And so, and so I guess we're not quite up to speed on the security measures necessary uh-huh. to... Uh, Just so, like life. Uh, we've gone back to private mode, but uh-huh. I can certainly send you screenshots and stuff if, you, if you're interested. We had uh, Edward Castronova on this uh, oh, program yeah. uh, talking about the virtual universes uh, it's so a while back. It's so fascinating to me. Is it growing? Yes, it is. Or is it pretty much leveled off? I, I mean, think the- people think it's not growing because Second Life isn't getting Business Week covers anymore. Mm-hmm. They were a media darling for yep. a little while, maybe two and a half years ago. Um, but no, there's more people in world now than ever, and um, the economy is is thriving. I think they're going through all kinds of growing pains. Certainly, I know they've restructured staff at Linden Labs probably a year or a year and a half ago. 
to really become uh, a more competitive um, sort of uh, operation. And I think much to the chagrin of many of the employees who really felt that they were part of a very special kind of social experiment. Yeah, it's um, – again, I think there's an enormous difference uh, among uh, age groups. Uh, people over the age of 50 think it's just simply weird that anybody would spend any time at all there. And people under the age of maybe 30 find it uh, – probably many people find it riveting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of people just assume that if you're going to go into Second Life, it means you want to live a second life there. But I think that accounts for very few of the residents in Second Life. Most people in there, I think, are very curious about what it means to interact with people within a virtual world. And certainly a lot of businesses are in there because it's a very cheap place to prototype and experiment and test some ideas for for the future of e-commerce. I think a, a lot of online retailers realize that something like Second Life is going to be much more typical to the online retail experience than these 2D websites that we have right now. For instance, you'll go to Amazon.com and it will look like a library or a bookstore. And you'll talk with people and you'll see the avatars of other people who are fingering the books that you're thinking about buying. You can have conversations with them if you choose to set your privacy level you know, uh, at that state. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful experimental place and it's, it's a wonderful chance to sort of look into the future. How much time do you spend there outside the center of attention? Oh, outside the center of attention? Well, it goes in spurts. Um, I have an interview in Second Life next week uh, talking about fashion designs within Second Life because they are protected by copyright because they're pieces of code. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, it's been a really interesting sort of uh, uh, side thing for me as I've been thinking about fashion over the years because I've been pretty active in Second Life, and, and I'm just thrilled that this journalist in Second Life uh, caught my TED.com talk and, and wanted to have a conversation. So how many pairs spending some time in world, let me tell you, looking at the fashion. Yeah, how many pairs of shoes do you have for your avatar? I think I only have four. And how many are there to choose from? Oh God, tens of thousands. Just it's like a, the real a, world. It's a really yeah, because it's all about appearance. You know, it's it's all about the attention economy in the virtual world, and so clothing your avatar is, is absolutely crucial. So that's that's one of the thriving aspects of the market marketplace within Second Life is is retail apparel design. Well, I, I've never been in Second Life, but if I oh, do... you haven't? You have to go. No, and, and, but I'll get an avatar where I can dress more hiply. It'll be very good for me. And you can help me. You can, I, and then nobody will know that you wear Brooks Brothers. Exactly. <laughs> My guest today has been Johanna Blakely. Johanna, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Oh, it was fun. Thanks for inviting me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.